Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a physical therapist who specializes in pulmonology explains why some people who survive COVID-19 can benefit from physical therapy. Everybody has a different story. We may not accomplish all of their goals, but we're going to set them on the right path to, to get back to that. A neurologist talks about polio and post-polio syndrome. Post-polio syndrome is a condition in which people who have had polio will recover, and then as they age, the symptoms worsen. So that's what our center is basically focused on, is trying to help people who had polio live well. And the director of trauma care shares some of the advances in his specialty. All that, plus a visit from the Healing Muse, right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's episode, we'll talk with a neurologist who cares for patients who need treatment for symptoms related to a polio infection from long ago. Then we'll learn about trauma care and how treatment has changed over the years. But first, a doctor of physical therapy tells why some people who survive COVID-19 could benefit from rehabilitation. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. People who are recovering from COVID-19 may have trouble returning to their previous activities with the same amount of stamina. They may benefit from a rehabilitation program. Here to discuss what might help is physical therapist Matt Bowman. He's from the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Department at Upstate, where he specializes in cardiovascular and pulmonary physical therapy. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Matt. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah. So from what I understand, people who are post-COVID may still have some symptoms, Um they may still be tired. What What are some of the other symptoms that you're seeing from people? Uh, I, tired is a great way to put it. Uh, people just don't have the stamina they did prior to, to being diagnosed with COVID. Um, they just, the smallest things really just wipe them out. Um, you know, I've known some, some people that have uh, just tried to uh, do the dishes or go out and they've tried to to mow the lawn like they did before and they come back in and they take two, three hour nap. Uh, they just get short of breath with some just simple daily tasks. Uh, there's just, uh, I think that is the biggest problem uh, post COVID uh, that, that patients have. Um, there are some uh, difficulties with joint pain and muscle aches. Um, they get shorter breath, like I mentioned, with a lot of different activities. Um, I think those are the biggest physical problems that these patients have uh, uh, in the uh, long haul or the long COVID as is starting to uh, become a, a trend on the social media uh, and in some articles uh, that are starting to come out on uh, uh, in the literature. So this sounds like it's much more than just if you've been sick or, or under the weather for a week or more and you're just kind of regaining your strength, you may be a little out of breath. This seems like it's longer lasting and more severe. It definitely is. Um, this is not the flu. Uh, this is affecting people who are in their 20s and 30s and 40s. And, and yes, it is true that it's not affecting them to the degree that it affects our, our older population. But these are people that uh, work 40-hour weeks uh, that, you know, they get sick and then they're out a couple of days and they come back and they feel fine. Uh, they get COVID and they're out of work for three, four weeks. Uh, they're, uh, and then they come back to work maybe half days if they can tolerate it. Uh, the, it is a much more severe effect and long-lasting effect than than. Uh, other diseases that we've uh, known about for a while. So, are these people who are no longer infectious? I mean, are they are they still spreading 
COVID or? No, I don't believe they are. Um, I, I've been trying to do uh, a little bit of research into that, find out what's in the evidence. And, and uh, because it's so new, the evidence does change, it seems, monthly. Um, the latest that I've seen is once someone uh, becomes symptomatic, uh, the belief is that 10 days after symptoms, they're no longer contagious. Uh, that means after their symptoms have started, uh, if the patient is more severe uh, where they're hospitalized or if they uh, uh, are immunocompromised, their immune system can't fight it. And so they uh, they may be contagious for up to 20 days. Um, but a lot of times once uh, the, the, the heavy symptoms um, subside, typically they're no longer contagious. So what can a physical therapist do to help someone? Well, we really look at that shortness of breath, uh, that strength, their physical ability. Uh, so uh, many patients that come in to see us uh, one in particular said he used to ride his bike around town up to 10 miles a day. And, and then he, after COVID, he could only do one mile. Um, you know, uh, someone I, I worked with uh, uh, was uh, able to, you know, he had, was a grandfather, um, but not that old, uh, still in his 50s, uh, but he was on oxygen and he his oxygen would drop with the, just a simple six minute walk. Uh, and uh, he would just have a lot of just physical strength deficits that did not, uh, did not exist prior. Um, and so we can help people resume their, their daily tasks. Uh, his, his focus was to return to singing to his granddaughter, uh, playing with his granddaughter, um, helping people climb the stairs that can really make them short of breath. Uh, that can really make them tired. Um, you know, muscle aches and, and joint pains, we, we can help the patient get stronger if they don't have uh, any flex, any, uh, they've lost some flexibility due to being inactive. They, they we can help uh, teach them exercises to stretch out their joints. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that we try to do uh, to help them return to their life as quickly as possible. So it sounds like each patient might have sort of a different target or goal and you have to customize a kind of a way to kind of get them there. Absolutely, uh, everybody has a, has a has a different story, and we we do try to customize to to match their story and to help them return to the life that they lived before. Um, we may not accomplish all of their goals or get them perfect prior to being finished with physical therapy, but we're going to set them on the right path to to get back to that. Uh, are there patients that need more specialized help, um, occupational therapy, speech therapy, that sort of thing? That's is. Do you see patients that are uh, recovering from COVID that need that need those services? Uh, yes, uh, and a lot of those uh, patients, um, because of the variety of effects that COVID has on them, it can affect the brain, it can affect the heart. It can affect various other organs in the body uh, by creating blood clots or uh, actually they found that the, the, the virus can infect brain cells. And, and so by those, there are neurological issues. So an occupational therapist can help with people who want to just return to their, their daily tasks uh, around the house. Uh, they may get shorter breath uh, with those things. Um, and their regular leisure activities, um, return to work skills. Um, because of the effect on the neurological system, the brain and the, the, uh, the nerves that, that move, move the muscles, uh, that can cause shortness of breath. Uh, and because of the newness, uh, the novel part of this, this illness and virus, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. Uh, and uh, even those that aren't hospitalized, but they're feeling sick, they still have, they have COVID. And, and that is very scary uh, prospect because of the unknown. And so there can be a lot of anxiety, stress, 
sleep disorders. Uh, and, and I've had patients and some friends explain that to me and, and occupational therapy can help with that. Uh, if someone is more severe and maybe in the hospital on a ventilator on a trach, they may have problems with their speech with swallowing. Uh, again, the, the brain operates those things. And so uh, a speech language pathologist can help uh, have those patients return to a normal speech pattern, not be so short of breath when talking, uh, work on swallowing. You know, they may have uh, instances where they're eating and drinking, but they have to consistently cough or clear their throat. That may be an instance where they are um, aspirating or, or in other words, bringing uh, that food and liquid may be getting into the lungs and, and causing problems there. And so the, uh, the speech language pathologist can help with that along with their memory and multitasking and uh, all those things that uh, we use on a daily basis that we're, we take for granted. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with physical therapist Matt Bowman about rehabilitation for people after they've recovered from COVID-19. So I want to ask you how the rehabilitation program at Upstate works. Can anyone get a referral from their doctor to come, or is this designed for Upstate patients? Uh, uh, no, this is designed for anybody that uh, has been through uh, COVID and is on the other side and is still noticing that they're having difficulty returning to their life that they knew before, uh, returning to work, returning to play, returning to recreational activities, just returning to their daily household tasks of, of perhaps washing the dishes and getting up and down the stairs. Um, people are not recovering very quickly from this. And so whether they were hospitalized either here and in one of the local hospitals, or if they just were at home and when they were able to, to get better at home, uh, their primary care physician can refer them uh, to our program. And, and we would be happy to, to see them and work with them and help them return to their, uh, the, the life that they want to live. Now, is this for uh, adults only, or what's the age range of patients that you see? Uh, well, that that's a good question. Um, I, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of uh, research that shows it's, it doesn't affect the children as much, which is certainly a wonderful thing. Uh, don't want the, the kids to get sick with this. But, uh, you know, I would say that someone, if they were infected and got sick and they're five years old and above, you know, that would be certainly appropriate for them to come in, um, you, know, you know, because we can play with them. You know, a child's work is play. And, you know, at, at our facilities, we have balls to play with. We have games. We have all different types of things that the kids can do. So, so certainly kids, teenagers um, can run the gamut of ages to come in and, and get the help that, that they need. Now, uh, we are still, this is still, you know, pandemic times. How safe is it for someone to come for physical therapy during the pandemic? This is an indoor activity, right? It is an indoor activity. Uh, and and that's one of the things that I struggled with for months, um, as well as our, our whole department, uh, trying to figure out how we can do this safely. And one of the things that as... Um, we started to reopen and, and as Governor Cuomo said, to phase four. Uh, when we got to phase four, it, it wasn't gonna get any better. We weren't going to, to be safer because uh, the virus was still going to be around. And so what we, uh, you know, our policies are when, when someone comes into the clinic, their temperature is taken, they're provided with the, one of the surgical, surgical ear loop masks, uh, all of the clinicians and um, administrative assistants are provided with ear loop masks and their temperatures are taken. Uh, for all of the uh, patients who come in who have pulmonary disease, and that could be patients with COPD or pulmonary fibrosis or transplant, uh, the therapists, we also wear a face shield uh, to further protect the patients. Um, every piece of equipment is wiped down with approved cleaners uh, to make sure that there is minimal risk of spread uh, from one patient to the next. Uh, and that's every patient, whether they're in for pain, 
or uh, orthopedic or post-op or anything. We, we make sure everything is wiped down uh, after every, every use. Um, so it's as safe as we can make it. Um, and we've been reopened for about five, four months or so. And as far as I know, uh, no one has um, gotten sick from, from being a therapy. So I would say we're doing a pretty good job so far. And where is the rehabilitation taking place? Is is there one location or more than one? Uh, there's more than one. Um, I'm currently downtown at the Institute for Human Performance on Irving Avenue. That is one location. Uh, another location is in East Syracuse at the Bone and Joint Center on Fly Road. Uh, and then we have a third location on the west side at Western Lights Plaza, uh, and uh, a fourth virtual location is we could actually do this uh, virtually over um, uh, over the computer if you feel that it's safer for you to be at home. Uh, we certainly understand that, and we could uh, work with you there. Uh, and uh, you know that's that's a fourth site that we can work at. So for virtual physical therapy, is that, have you found our insurance companies covering that at the same rate they do physical therapy appointments? Yes, so That they might are. be a good uh, option for. It is a good option. Um, it's a viable option. Um, you know, the, the insurance companies are actually understanding of, of that and, and uh, people are taking advantage of it and, and um, it's, it's working. You know, I'm, I'm watching people get better over the internet, which is a, which is a great thing. Wow. Well, for people who are interested, a way to uh, reach and, and learn more information about how to um, sign up for physical therapy at Upstate, the number I have, 315-464-6543. Is that the best number for people to call? That's, that's correct. Yep. Absolutely. Um, that goes to our call center number um, and, and uh, our, our uh, people on that line will be able to answer as many questions as many questions as they can. And if you have further questions they're unable to answer, they shoot me an email, and I do try to give you a call uh, within 24 hours um, to try to answer your questions. Thank you so much to physical therapist Matt Bowman. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a historical look at polio. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A global effort to eradicate polio has resulted in a dramatic drop in the number of cases, but there are still some infections every year, and there are people who are still dealing with the aftereffects of a polio infection. Here to talk about polio and post-polio syndrome is Dr. Jenny Meyer. She's an assistant professor of neurology at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Meyer. Thank you so much for having me, Amber. It might seem like polio belongs in another era because it was like a century ago when it was one of the most feared diseases in North America. I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a little about the history of polio. Sure. Um, so polio was first described in the late 1800s, but it wasn't actually discovered as to what it was until 1908. Um, actually, it was discovered in Vienna, Austria, by uh, two scientists, uh, Carl Landstinger and Erwin Popper. And they basically found by uh, taking uh, uh, autopsies of patients who had had polio, they filtered their cerebral spinal fluid through a uh, type of uh, cloth, a very like a fine. And because bacteria would typically get caught in the filter, they realized that after they injected the filtered CSF into monkeys that it caused polio in monkeys. So they figured out it's a virus, not a bacteria. Uh, back way back in 1908, uh, which is impressive. Wow. Now you said CSF? Yeah. Wait. Cerebrospinal fluid uh, oh. is uh, the fluid that they were taking from the um, autopsies from those patients. Now, uh, a century ago, we didn't have as much uh, travel as we do today. How did polio make its way to America? 
So polio is uh, transmitted very easily. It's a highly infectious virus. Um, if someone in your home was to get it, there's almost a 99 to 100% chance that you will get it too. It's passed uh, through what's called fecal oral, which sounds disgusting, but actually is a very common passage. Uh, basically, people who don't adequately wash their hands after toileting uh, have some you know, residual fecal matter on their hands, which then they touch an object in the house. Someone else touches that object, then eats or touches their mouth, goes in, and then they get the virus too. Um, the other way is that if someone is actively sick and coughing and sneezing, they can spread the virus through what's called droplet, uh, which is basically the particles that fly out of your nose or mouth when you cough. Uh, so someone else could breathe those in and get the virus that way. So it's very infectious. And so because of that, you know, regardless of what part of the world has polio, it can spread easily from household to household. So I know people were really, really afraid of this. Did, did it kill people or what, what were the symptoms? What did polio do to you? Yeah, so uh, polio actually starts as sort of a generic cold. Um, usually people will have symptoms of sore throat, maybe some diarrhea or nausea, flu-like symptoms for just a few days. And then most of the time people will just recover and not have any additional symptoms. However, there is this uh, sort of complicated version of polio where certain people will get uh, the polio virus will migrate into their nervous system and cause paralysis. And this typically would occur probably seven to 10 days, um, uh, sometimes a little bit uh, longer than that after having the cold part of the virus. And uh, it would cause them to become weak in their limbs. They would have trouble breathing. They could have trouble swallowing and required hospitalization. Now, this disease was rampant in the early 1900s, so we didn't have a lot of the medical care that we have now. So, uh, I mean, thinking about what ventilators looked like back then um, uh, in terms of people with breathing issues, I mean, many people died of just not being able to breathe because they weren't able to get to a hospital or if their hospital had a ventilator, it, you know, hopefully it would keep them alive or they had enough for everybody who needed them, things like that. So how did, how was it treated? What, were there any medications or, I mean, what did they use to treat actually, this? So there isn't actually any um, medical uh, tr treatment in terms of medications to treat polio. It is a virus. So unfortunately there wasn't any medications developed to go against polio. What we really had to do to help people survive it was to keep them alive long enough for their bodies to fight it off. So uh, patients would be admitted to the hospital. They would be put in ICU, uh, intensive care unit. Um, they would be attached to a ventilator if they needed it. Uh, they would be given fluids, um, nutrition by maybe a tube if they needed it, um, just to keep their body living long enough to fight off the virus. And then afterwards, when, you know, these are people who are paralyzed. Uh, there was a significant period of time where the doctors and you know therapists would work with the patient to recover as much of their strength as they could. But it really was the natural healing process of the body that we were just facilitating in the medical field. Well, eventually, a vaccine was developed. Did it? Did that come along quickly, or how did that come into fashion? So actually, the vaccine wasn't really developed until the 1950s. So if you imagine the polio started being described way back in the late 1800s, I mean, it was almost 50 to 60, 70 years before we had a vaccine. And those early vaccines were interesting in that they uh, were being tested in um, uh, people who basically either couldn't consent to uh you know, provide their own uh, care or they uh, were being tested on people who volunteered. So the studies were not very robust initially. Um, and some of them even were somewhat unethical, I would say. Uh, the uh, vaccine itself uh, actually was developed in two different ways. And um, it wasn't until like the I would say 1952 when Salk, who we all, I think, associate with the polio vaccine. Um, That's Dr. Dr. Jonas Dr. Salk. Salk, who we, I think, uh, commonly know as uh, the founder of the polio vaccine. He actually did his first study in 1952, which was 
you know, a significant time period. It was effective, lucky for him. Um, although I thought interestingly, I found out that they originally tested it in disabled children and they didn't tell the parents whether they got the vaccine or a placebo, which was somewhat, I think, unethical. <laughs> Wow. Well, <laughs> let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with neurologist Dr. Jenny Meyer about polio. So in terms of eradicating polio, how have public health officials almost accomplished that? Yeah, so there's actually two different vaccines for polio. Um, in the U.S., we all primarily get a intravenous vaccine, um, which is a series of four shots that actually are given to children because the disease is most, uh, people are most susceptible when they're under age five. Uh, so if your child goes through the traditional vaccine route, they would get shots at two months, four months, six months, and then um, a booster when they're about four or six years old, four to six years old. Um, and that is how we keep polio at bay in the U.S. because there isn't any active wild virus polio moving around. In the undeveloped world, uh, there is a oral vaccine, which is given mainly because it's really hard to give shots to people when they don't have regular medical care. And so because it's a liquid, it can be given by volunteers who go and uh, work in you know, uh, communities without doctors. Um, the oral vaccine is about 50% effective after the first dose, which is two drops under the tongue. And then you need actually subsequent doses, um, actually three really to be protected uh, with the oral vaccine, which is why polio still remains um, present in our world. Uh, because if you imagine that only 50% of your population is dropping their polio uh, passing or their ability to pass polio after one dose, you know, that those there's still people in the community that are passing polio around. And so it really requires consistent, uh, frequent vaccinations in undeveloped, uh, underdeveloped countries to prevent the virus from becoming an issue again. So the World Health Organization in December 2019 uh, issued a concern that the trend of increasing cases of polio was not slowing. So are, are we seeing polio coming back in the United States? Uh, I actually don't know specifically about the data in the U.S., but I know that um, because of the fact that we use the intravenous vaccine, there are um, no cases report. I mean, this is a killed vaccine, so there's no active virus in our vaccine. So in the U.S. specifically, the population doesn't um, have uh, wild polio unless someone was to bring it in from another country. Um, but they also, in the U.S., we don't have the risk of what's called a vaccine-associated polio, which can happen with the oral vaccine. Um, because the oral vaccine is a killed virus, there may be, in the process of producing it, some viral particles that do not fully become killed. And so there is a very small risk of uh, basically getting polio from the vaccine if you use the oral vaccine, which is why the U.S. has gone exclusively intravenous. However, like I said, in um, other countries where they don't have uh, as easily or easy access to medical care, they uh, still are using the oral vaccine, which is why some cases can occur in those populations actually just from being vaccinated. Although I should say as a doctor that the risk of developing polio from the vaccine is much lower than the risk of contracting polio from another person if it is active in your population. Well, I understand that Upstate has a post-polio syndrome research and treatment center. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so um, Dr. Jubelt, who was our former chair, Dr. Burke Jubelt, he was our former chair, was a very active polio researcher in his career. Uh, he recently retired in uh, 2019 May, um, but he uh, really uh, took a lot of interest in polio patients and sort of built this entire center uh, around that. Uh, so our so focus, let me let me interrupt yeah, you. These are people who survived polio, but years ago. Yes, most okay. of the patients are, I would say, over the age of 65. Uh, most of them had polio as a child in the U.S. before 
uh, vaccines became widely available, which, like I said, is after 1950. Um, so these people uh, needed someone to help them through their uh, disabilities as they aged. Um, Post-polio syndrome is a condition in which people who have had polio will recover for a period of their, their life. And then as they age, the symptoms worsen, even in parts of the body that had seemingly fully healed. Uh, and so... Uh, they need, you know, new assistive devices to walk. They need uh, therapy to complete their regular daily functions. They often have pain associated with this, so they need medications to help sort that out. Uh, so that's what our center is basically focused on, is trying to help people who had polio live well. So you mentioned uh, some of the symptoms may be pain, but they're these people are still dealing with some degree of paralysis, perhaps, that's been lifelong. Yeah, sometimes the patients will have a permanent disability directly after their polio, but a lot of them recover quite, you know, quite well. They may have a limp. They might have some subtle weakness in an arm or a leg, so they they will call it, you know, their bad leg or their bad arm. But you may not even know that someone that you know had polio if it wasn't very severe. Um, but uh, post-polio syndrome isn't discriminate against who uh, had polio and who had who had a bad case of polio and who had a, a light case of post-polio. Post-polio syndrome can happen to anybody who had polio. Is it possible? I mean, are these um, uh, side effects that uh, came during the infection, or is it possible for someone to develop some symptoms today, not realizing that you know they had had polio way back when? Um, I think it's pretty unlikely for someone not to know if they had had polio uh, because the patients who have the highest risk of post-polio syndrome are patients who typically had pretty severe polio as a child. Uh, the the worse your disability was then, the more likely you're to become disabled now. Uh, so I would say if you had a very, very mild case of, say, just the cold virus related to polio, the chances of you developing post-polio syndrome are I would say slim to none. Well, that's good to know. Now, how can people gain access to the center? Is there um, a phone number or a website? So actually, they just have to get a referral from their primary care doctor to the Upstate Neurology Department. Uh, we have uh, all of our referrals, uh, whether it's multiple sclerosis, polio, ALS, they all go through the same uh, same referrals department, and then it just gets uh, sent to the correct uh, scheduling team. So uh, the number for our main office is 315-464-4243. But like I said, we do require a referral from a primary care doctor uh, to be screened for the clinic. So you'd have to talk to your personal doctor first. Thank you to neurologist Dr. Jenny Meyer. I'm your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening to Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Trauma Care, next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Patients throughout central New York who are the most critically ill or who have the most complex life-threatening injuries are usually brought to upstate or transferred to upstate because upstate is the region's level one trauma center. I'm talking today with Dr. Bill Marks, who's the chief of trauma and critical care at upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Marks. Thank you. So the pandemic has kept many people from getting out and about like they might usually have done. Does that mean that you're seeing fewer people who need hospital care after being injured? We were in the March and April timeframe, but since things have kind of loosened up and people are back out doing their normal activities, the incidence has come back up to where we were before COVID. So it didn't slow things down for very long. Not at all. We had a little change in the in the types of trauma we saw. We saw more um, 
penetrating trauma than we did blunt trauma. And blunt trauma are things like falls, motor vehicle crashes, pedestrians struck by a car, bicyclists struck by a car. Those are typically blunt trauma, but the penetrating trauma, the gunshot wounds and stabbings went up. And is that still sort of the experience you're seeing now? No, it's kind of drifted back to normal. Well, that's um, good. Yeah, which is, which is great for the community. Now, is it true that deaths from trauma overall are the third leading cause of death behind heart disease and cancer? Yes, it, it still is. And, so it is. Yeah. For all ages, kids all the way up to adults. Well, it, there, it's a sort of like what's called a bimodal distribution. It goes up as you get into your mid-teens to about your mid-20s, and then it goes down. And then when you start to get into your early 60s and in later years, it goes back up. And the old, yeah, and the older patients are primarily low falls, motor vehicle crashes, um, getting hit by a car while they're walking. Well, let's talk about what trauma is. What's the working definition? So trauma is any injury that a patient sustains, whether it's intentional or unintentional. You, it can be a car wreck. It can be somebody playing football and uh, get in, injured in there, have a splenic rupture. It can be somebody shot. It can be somebody stabbed. There's a whole host of injuries. People, with, uh, as I said, with the low falls, that's an injury. Um, those patients are older, and they have a higher mortality rate than uh, people their own age who aren't uh, injured. What sorts of specialists are likely to be part of the trauma team for any given patient that comes to Upstate? Well, we have we have nine trauma surgeons who specialize in trauma and critical care, and that's primarily the bulk of our practice. We also do the emergency general surgery. Um, we have three orthopedic traumatologists. These are orthopedic surgeons who have taken additional fellowships in the management of orthopedic trauma. We have our neurosurgeons who help manage these patients and they they manage the traumatic brain injuries with us. But typically the the captain of the ship is the trauma surgeon. And then you know I don't want to forget emergency medicine that's the portal where everybody comes in. So roughly how many trauma patients are cared for at upstate each year? Well, we, we admit about 2,200 trauma patients a year, and the emergency department sees another 6,000 trauma patients who were treated and released. Now, is that just adults or pediatric as well? Uh, no, that's just the adult trauma service. The pediatric trauma service, I think they admit about 500 patients a year. And are most of the trauma patients that come to Upstate, do they get here by ambulance or helicopter or... Well, primarily by ambulance. Um, you know, getting a helicopter, usually these patients are out in more remote areas, and the helicopters aren't like you see on MASH on TV or any, anything like that. They're not sitting there all revved up and ready to go. They have to warm up. They have to get their crew up in the air, fly to the scene. So that can take a little bit longer. And so sometimes if there's the right... EMS personnel at the scene, it's much easier and faster for them to put the patient in an ambulance and drive here. Well, the other part of your title is chief of critical care. Does that refer more to the patients who, where it's not an injury, but it's more of a, a critical illness? Well, we do critical care encompasses the care of patients in the intensive care unit. So we manage mechanical ventilation, infections, um, you know, things like that. And um, those are patients who can either have had surgery, who need surgery, or who have been injured. So a pretty wide range, it sounds it's like. It's a pretty wide range of patients, yes, exactly. And are a lot of these patients um, transferred from outlying hospitals that recognize that maybe the patient needs more specialized care that is only available? Well, I wouldn't say the bulk of them, but many of them come from outside. Um, and sometimes they're not emergencies that come in. Somebody may come in and have 
have a liver resection for a cancer that spread to their liver, a big colon resection, a big vascular procedure, they end up in the intensive care unit. But we have, we have a number of intensive care units here. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking to Upstate's Chief of Trauma and Critical Care, Dr. Bill Marks. Now, I understand that the American College of Surgeons has recognized Upstate for uh, what they called meritorious outcomes for high-risk surgical patients in 2018. Can you explain why this is an impressive accolade? Well, that's primarily for managing non-trauma patients who have had, uh, who we've lowered the rate of infection, post-operative complications, and we've, re- we've achieved a very low rate in those areas. So our, our overall surgical care that's not a trauma patient is excellent. Well, I'd like to ask you about some ways in which trauma care has evolved during your time practicing. Can you tell me how someone with trauma to, let's say, their spleen um, might be treated today compared to how they might have been treated a decade or more ago? Well, it, probably about 30 years ago, we didn't have CAT scans. And now a trauma patient gets a CT scan. A splenic injury was identified 30 years ago by a physical exam, by the mechanism of injury, by the patient's vital signs. And most of those patients had an operation and had their spleen removed. Now with with CT scans, all these patients get scanned. We identify the splenic injury, for example, and we may not have to operate on that. And or we may have to have the interventional radiologist do a selective angiogram of the splenic artery and put in some coils to to stop blood flow to the spleen. And that will allow us to salvage the spleen, which is much better for the patient. Um, With liver injuries, we use a lot of non-operative management, but, but with penetrating injuries or bowel perforations, the majority of those patients have an operation. Interesting. What about someone who suffers multiple injuries in a car crash? Maybe they've got broken bones or they're bleeding or they've got a head injury. How do you prioritize what needs to be fixed first? Well, what we do is we do what we call in the advanced trauma life support course, the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and then their neurologic exam. And so um, if we have a secure airway, we look to be sure the patient's not bleeding, that they're they're breathing, and then we um, decide what we're going to do after we find that. So how has care for patients with multiple trauma changed? Because I've heard that sometimes these days trauma surgeons are recommending leaving the patient's wound open for a period of time while they're recovering. Can you explain what that's well, about? Yeah, this this is something that came out of of the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, when I was a resident, it was felt to be very poor practice to leave somebody's abdomen open. And because of the injuries that are sustained in the war, we found out that some injuries are much better taken care of if you go ahead, you operate, you stop the bleeding, you, you stop the leakage from the bowel, you pack the abdomen, and then you take them to the ICU, you get them warm, you correct any coagulation defects that they have, and you fix their breathing. And then the next day or two days after, you come back and you put the bowel together and um, close the abdomen. Uh, orthopedics stages their inj- uh, repair of their injuries right now. Most open fractures used to get operated on within about six hours. And now you you have up to 24 hours if the wound is washed out and uh, the patient receives the right antibiotics. So it's much better for the patient to give us time to, to fully resuscitate them before they have to go back to the OR for a more extensive procedure. The initial procedure is just to stop the bleeding and stop contamination and um, allow us to really get the patient in better uh, health to go back to the OR. So it sounds like it might, the whole process might like take longer, but for the long term, it gives the patient a better chance at recovering. Right, right. By, by correcting their coagulation defect, which patients who are injured um, 
have when they bleed significantly. Um, it so that, let me let me interrupt you. That coagulation—that's the the blood's ability to to clot, to clot so that it's not just right. leaking so, out. So when you when you get injured and you have significant blood loss, you have a trauma-induced coagulopathy. They've they've lost a lot of blood. They've lost clotting factors, and so what we do is we have what's called a massive transfusion protocol where we give fresh blood, we give uh, plasma, and we give platelets. And the combination of the red cells to carry oxygen, the plasma and the platelets to help form clot are, um, are much better for the patient if we, if we take our time and do that and get them in better condition for surgery. Are there new ways of controlling bleeding? I, I was going to ask you to describe something that's called resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. Yeah. What yes, is that? That, so what that is, it's a, it's a catheter with a balloon on it that we put in the femoral artery and we advance it up the aorta. And we can advance it into the chest or into the mid-abdomen or into the lower part of the abdomen and blow up the balloon and stop the blood flow to injured areas. And it gives us time to get the patient to the OR without them losing more blood and dying, potentially. So how you describe going in through a big vessel, that sounds like um, there's a lot of medical interventions that kind of do this sort of thing, right? Well, not this. They don't, they don't use the balloon. It's called Reboa. Um, and they don't do that. The trauma surgeons are the only ones that use that right now. Okay. So you advance into this vessel yeah. and you go to the area that's got whatever injury and, right. and stop the body from having blood go to that area so that you yes. can work on it? So you can go to the OR and work on it. And we try not to leave the balloon up for much more than an hour. We try to get them up to the OR and um, address the problem quickly. Because when you let the balloon down, you have the reperfusion of the part of the body that wasn't getting blood and it brings out some nasty um, cytokines or chemicals in the bloodstream that can cause all sorts of problems. Well, do you have any advice for someone who comes upon someone who's been shot or stabbed? What's the first thing that they need to do to help that person? Stop the bleeding is the most important thing. If it's an extremity, you can put direct pressure on it. Um, you can put a tourniquet on it, and EMS has tourniquets. But the most important thing is to first stop the bleeding, and second, be sure they can breathe. And then uh, hopefully get them to a trauma center quickly, right? Right. Get them to a trauma center very quickly. So we use the term level one trauma center, but what does level one, what does that mean practically speaking? So a level one trauma center means the trauma patient doesn't have to go anywhere else to receive the entire spectrum of trauma care. And this was started back in about 1972 when there was a study that compared trauma outcomes in San Diego and San Francisco. San Francisco had a highly organized trauma system where most of the patients went to San Francisco General and in San Diego they went to a couple different hospitals and the mortality rate in a well-developed trauma system was much lower than in a non-trauma system area. So the College of Surgeons over the last 50 years or so has developed uh, a process to identify trauma centers. It's called verification. And a level one trauma center has to have a whole host of equipment so that you don't transfer anybody out. A level two trauma center, you transfer some of the patients out. A level three trauma center um, stops the bleeding and may take care of some smaller injuries, but they tend to transfer most of their patients out. And over time, we found that patients who get to a level one trauma center have a lower mortality rate, a lower complication rate, and overall better outcomes than patients who go to community hospitals that don't have trauma surgeons, that don't have specialists in trauma care. Well, that's very good to know. Thank you so much to Dr. Bill Marks, the Chief of Trauma and Critical Care at Upstate. 
I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Lisa Wiley teaches English at SUNY Erie Community College in Buffalo, New York. She sent us a short but joyful portrait of a good doctor. Here is Dr. Moon is my mother's oncologist. Wonder if I'll see all his phases. Luminous, his round, smiling face pushes the celery-colored curtains aside, pulling all anxious tides toward him. My mother questions her arm hooked up to the juice, my father calls it. You need this, Dr. Moon says, or else my whole life is wrong. These shimmering rays of certainty, no sliver of tiny crescents, waning or waxing. You've got this, asserts quick-to-laugh Luna, a brilliant harvest moon. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a special episode dedicated to the latest news and information about breast cancer. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.